My name is Brandon. I'm the pastor of preaching here at Sojourn Heights. As he said, we are uh, we're diving into our season of Advent today, and so let's um, let's get started. Uh, we we all, I assume, we all, most of us, we we love movies, and in particular, uh, we love romantic comedies, uh, otherwise known as chick flicks. And uh, if you don't know what that is, think uh, movies that women love and men pretend not to. That's what a chick flick is. All right. <laughs> And in 1999, a great one came out called Notting Hill. Uh, Notting Hill was this movie about a uh, relationship, desired relationship between a famous lady uh, and a not-so-famous guy. And her fame made the relationship difficult. Uh, And this movie built toward this climactic scene at the end where she came in front of him and said, Do you remember it? There we go. I'm so proud of y'all. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love me. And we all wept. Every one of us. I was a junior in college praising God that I was alone watching that movie at that time. Uh, uh, Here's why we we like romantic comedies. uh, All romantic comedies have the same storyline. Love lost love found. Every one of them. Heart broken, heart healed. And that's actually a subplot, either the plot or a subplot of every movie you're going to watch. And if it's not in there, it didn't make the theater because it's a bad movie. Every one of them has this as a plot or a subplot. And, and here's, um, here's my question, why? Why, why is this? Well, well, here's the reason why. The reason why is, uh, is that this is the human story. All right, this is the human story woven in to all of us. My uh, daughter, I have a daughter who is six. Um, she has a little friend named Brighton who is also six. And this week I came out of a bedroom, turned into the living room, and Isley, my six-year-old daughter, with this big smile on her face, looked at me and said, Daddy, 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 it's true. Brighton loves me and he's going to marry me. And I cried. And, I, uh, and if you think six is too young for that, I agree. And so I've got a conference call with Brighton's daddy set up for next week. <laughs> but let me tell you, it's, now, I, I'm so derailing right now. Uh, but here's the deal. When I was dating, when I was dating, I thought arranged marriage, terrible idea. You know why? Because I wanted to find my own woman. That's why. But now that I've got a daughter, I think it's brilliant. And I'm all for it. Now, back to the sermon. Here, here's, the, here's the point. Uh, Brighton, Brighton at six years old, here's what he knows. I'm to find love. My, my daughter at six, you know what she knows? Love is to find me. It is the human story. And our movies tell this human story. That this love lost, love found, heartbroken, heart healed, it's woven into our movies because it's the human story, and it's the human story because it's the story of Advent. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, is going to take us right into the heart of this story with the who, the what, and the how of Advent. And so the who, let's start there, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And so the who of Advent, uh, to answer the question, who, we're simply answering the question, who is me? Who is me? And we read it a few minutes ago. We, we read it a moment ago, so it's no, no big surprise. This is 
talking about Christ, that where the entirety of the Scriptures in all of the Old Testament is this revelation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This is one of those texts that's, that's really clear and really direct because Jesus quotes it in Luke 4. And here, here's what's really fascinating about this. I, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, as best we know, the, the scrolls would have been about seven meters long. About seven meters is what they would have been. And so when Jesus opens up this scroll uh, from Isaiah, he would unroll about seven meters of scroll to find this little phrase for him to say, this is me. Hey, hey, this, this, this one you're looking for, this one that Isaiah was talking about, this is me. I'm the anointed one. And anointed simply means to be set apart for a specific purpose. Um, and throughout the Old Testament, there was this hope, this future desire, this expectation that there would be an anointed one, a capital A anointed one that was coming. And here's what makes this such a great Advent text, that if you're reading the Bible for the first time, or if you're sitting down and, you're, uh, and you've got you know, nothing to do on a Saturday and you just start in Genesis and you read um, all the way through and you know, you know nothing about Christianity, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're going to think, wait, wait a minute, God didn't come through. Right? There was this expectation, there was this anointed one, this capital A anointed one, Psalms 2, the, the kind of anointed one the, the Old Testament talks about that is going to come, but he never came. And you're going to think God didn't come through. God failed on his promise. But then you're going to keep reading probably on Sunday because you're not going to do the whole thing in one day. But on Sunday, you're going to hit Luke 4 and all of a sudden you're going to see Jesus saying, this is me. And you're going to have flares going off inside of your soul. And then you're going to take Jesus back to Isaiah and you're going to see Jesus everywhere. You're going to see him woven into the story of Isaiah. And so the who of Advent is Christ. And now for the what of Advent. The what does Christ do? Let's keep reading. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What does that mean? What does it mean to bring good news to the poor? He explains and This is what he does. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. What, what is it that Christ at the heart of Advent does? He heals the brokenhearted. And brokenhearted means to be overcome with grief, especially and particularly because someone that you love has left you. It's a straight definition of the word. And so why is Isaiah saying this to Israel? Well, here's what was happening. Um, Isaiah at this time in, in Isaiah 61 was speaking into the future of the nation when they would be in captivity in Babylon. That as a nation, this nation of Israel would be taken captive by Babylon and they would be looking at their surroundings and they would be sitting there going, and God has forgotten me. God has moved on. He has set me aside. And I, I, I can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder how many of us in this room feel like Israel right now. Like you look at your life, you look at, man, it might be your marriage, it might be your job, it might be the fact that you're not married. How, how many of us look in this room and go, man, I just feel like God has forgotten me. Like if there's a God and he loves me, this would not be happening. And Jesus is entering into that story. And Isaiah though, Isaiah is actually subtly, in a very subtle way, correcting Israel here. And he corrects them with the word bind. He's saying, hey, hey listen, God hasn't left you. Your heart has left him. And, and, and that word bind, it's a really technical word for Isaiah. Uh, it traces its roots back to Isaiah 1, verse 6, where he's talking about the sin in the heart of the nation. 
And he's flagging this. He's saying, your heart has been bound to sin. And so when, when Israel's reading this, when they hit that, that little Hebrew word by Isaiah, they're going to flag back to Isaiah 1, and they're going to hear him saying, hey, your, your heart is bound. It's broken because of what it's bound to. Sin, he's saying, has come in, ruptured, raptured the heart of the nation. And if we could define sin as anything that would break the law or the heart of God, I think it's important. I think it's important that we pause when we talk about why we talk about sin. Why is it necessary that sin is part of your vocabulary, right? I mean, it's 2015. Come on, Brandon. Really? Like, haven't we moved on from words like sin? Isn't that an unnecessary term for us? And I'm going to say it's actually necessary. And to ignore the word sin, to take the word sin out of your vocabulary, I would say actually perpetuates brokenness. And that if you want to find healing in your life, you actually need to reintroduce the word sin into your life. Let me, let me try to show you and try to prove it. This might be completely unconvincing, but let me give it a shot. 18th, 19th century or so, uh, Western society, of which most of us have, were born and raised in, Western society said, hey, you, you really need to ditch the word sin. Let me, let me tell you what it does. All it does, if you talk about sin, is heap shame on people. It makes you feel shame. It makes them feel shame. It doesn't actually benefit society. And by the way, anyway, social problems, the, the real ills in society are social problems, right? Education, politics, etc. And so what we need isn't to talk about sin. What we need is to talk about advancement. We need advancement in education. We need advancement in science. We need advancement in our sophistication when it comes to politics, government. But here's the problem. Over the next hundred years, we had all of those advances. And you know what else we had? The Holocaust. We had two world wars. We had all the advancements that the 18th and early 19th century ever could have wanted. And it came with it, nothing but brokenness. And let me tell you, Keller citing uh, Andrew DeBlanco. This is what Andrew says. This is his observation on society, on culture that we have been raised in. He says, a gulf has opened up. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. I want to read that first sentence again. This is the society that you and I were brought up in, most of us. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. We got rid of the concept of sin, but now we see it in front of us, and we can't talk about it. We can't deal with it. We feel ourselves in the presence of something that we no longer have the vocabulary to deal with. And I, and I think he's absolutely right. I think DeBlanco is absolutely right about this. For example, uh, we all know what happened in Italy. And by Italy, I mean Paris. I, I've been to Italy. I, you know, I know where it is and where it isn't. Paris. We all know what happened in Paris. And it was horrific. And it was heartbreaking. And it was infuriating. And it was enraging. But I don't know how many of you guys saw the interview with a girl on the street long, not long after that said, listen, the, the problem is that our society made them feel like outcasts. What's happening there? 
what's happening. This girl doesn't have the vocabulary to say there is evil inside of their hearts. And so the problems of the world become social. They become social problems. This is what was happening to Israel. Israel is looking at their life. They're looking at Babylon. They're looking at their surroundings. And they're saying the problem with the world is where we are. The problem is our surroundings. And Isaiah is coming in and he's saying, no, 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 no. The problem is inside you. The problem is that sin has affected you and infected you. And you need vocabulary to deal with it and to understand it. Because to ignore it will simply perpetuate brokenness in your life. And here's what's going to happen in your life. If, if life becomes surface level problems and all the problems of life become what's around you, every time you have relational strife, every time you have conflict, it's always going to be someone else's fault. Always. It'll always be, they don't understand me. It'll always be that guy at work, that lady at work. They're just hard to deal with. As if we are not. Anxiety. Uh, anxiety will always be rooted in problems of life, work, marriage, singleness, school. It'll never be an internal problem that you ever strive to deal with. You will be like Israel, looking around and going, the problem is all around me, not inside of me. And Christ came to get into the deep waters of your life, because here, here's the deal. Problems all around you and never inside you lead to surface-level living. And surface-level living always looks for shallow pleasures. And what offers the shallowest pleasure of all? Sin. So here's the irony. Not talking about the word sin actually leads you to sin. It leads you to shallow pleasures that will always leave you brokenhearted. They will always let you down. Every single time. And so if we're going to talk about Advent, if we're going to talk about Advent and why Christ came, the who, the how, the what, the what, the how, that, if we're going to talk about Advent, we have to talk about the root issue that needed Advent. So that Jesus can come in, can get into the deep waters of our life. But Isaiah is going to go farther. He's going to say that he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That Isaiah is saying that those who are brokenhearted are captives in prison. This is, um, this is Isaiah's way of saying that, listen, you have been captivated and gripped, consumed by sin. And to understand what's really happening here, uh, we need to see how Jesus interprets bound. When, Jesus, when, when, when he says um, the prisons to those who are bound, here's, here's how Jesus interprets it. This is his quote. This is how he quotes Isaiah 4.18. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, so far so good, and recovering sight to the blind. You see, Jesus is saying the real problem is that you're spiritually blind. That sin has blinded you to your real internal problem blinded you to who God is. But the real problem is an internal problem and you can't see it 
So here's why we have to talk about sin. This is why we can't ignore the word sin. That, that Jesus is saying that the situation in Israel was a physical reality of a spiritual inward truth, inward reality. It was a picture externally of something happening internally. That sin has blinded our minds so that we can't see God, and because we can't see God, we can't see our internal condition as it really is. And so we have to talk about where that came from. And so now, let's see how Isaiah responds to this sin blinding our spiritual condition, enabling us or disabling our ability to see God for who he is. This is how Isaiah responds, verse 2. I've been sent here to do X, Y, Z, and now to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And so here's Isaiah's response to the human condition that proclaimed to preach, to live the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. These are, these are two separate days. And so to, to understand, let's start with the year of the Lord's favor. In the Old Testament, there was something called a Sabbath. Sabbath was every seven days that you rested. But then there was a Sabbath year, which was every seven years, uh, the entire nation rested. The land rested. But then in Leviticus 25, uh, there was something really fascinating. There was this um, Sabbath, Sabbath year. Let me just read it to you. It says, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land of its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return his clan, return to his clan. So here, here's what happened. Every seven years, um, debts are forgiven, uh, servants are released, but then every 50 years, it goes a step farther. It goes a step farther, and it says, um, not just debts forgiven, servants released, but if... If you had lost your land, your family's land, if you lost it anywhere during those 49 years, it gets returned to you. It gets returned to you. This was um, a, a pursuit. This was God's. This is how we're going to pursue complete social and spiritual restoration of the land, of the nation, of the people. And here's what's fascinating about the year of Jubilee. It never happened. It never happened. And so when Jesus shows up and he quotes Luke 4, or in Luke 4 when he quotes Isaiah, he's saying Jubilee is here. Jubilee is here. This complete social, spiritual restoration that you've been after, it's here. And it's here in me. And so how does he do it? How, how then? So we have the who, Christ, the what, this healing the brokenhearted through complete restoration, but now the How? Verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. This is, this is Isaiah being incredibly literal right here. When he's talking about ashes, these are literal ashes that he's talking about. And here's what he's, here's what he's picturing. When, when we go to a funeral, what do we do? What do we put on? What do we wear? We wear black. In their day, when you go to a funeral, you put on ashes. You dump it on the head. This was the headdress of ashes. It signified death. 
This is Isaiah's way of saying, hey, you, you, don't, you don't know what sin does to you? It completely disintegrates you. It burns you up from the inside out. It turns you into ashes. And so if I could maybe pause the sermon a little bit. When we talk about the necessity of transparency, vulnerability, and community, when we plead with you, hey, go and not just get into a neighborhood parish, but actually give your life to the neighborhood parish. Lay your life bare before one another. Here's what we're doing. We're, we're pleading with you to say, listen, I, I don't want sin to consume my life and burn me up from the inside out. I need community to be water that gets doused on the flame of sin in my life. And here's what happens when you hide. When you hide in plain sight, you put a protective shell up around the flame of sin inside of you so that that cold water that community is meant to be can't get to it. And so when we plead with you, it's not because we think it's cute and fun to live your life in relationship with one another. It's because we think it'll save your life. That what sin wants to do is burn you up from the inside and what community says is no. We're going to put water on it together. Back to the sermon. This is Isaiah's way of saying sin leaves us in ashes. Sin leads to mourning. But let me tell you the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is in verse 3. And it's the word instead. Instead. Look at what he says. Instead of. Instead, beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. But on the cross, here's what Jesus did. When Jesus went to the cross, he put on a headdress, but it was thorns. And the ashes of death poured over him. And at the height of at the height of divine mourning was Christ up there saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was Jesus entering into the human story so that when you look at your life and you think, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can tell you this for sure. I can't tell you why what's happening in your life is happening, but I can tell you this for sure. It's not that God doesn't care. It's not that God doesn't care. When you look and you feel forsaken, I can't always tell you why it's happening, but I can tell you that it's not happening because God doesn't care. God entered into the deepest, most painful parts of the human story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He mourned like we have never mourned before so that he could identify with your mourning, with my mourning. It's not that he doesn't care. And when this grips you, when Christ grips you, and Advent becomes something meaningful to you, when all of a sudden Advent is not a cute Christmas story, but it becomes the story of your life, here's what happens. There's no longer just a who, a what, and a how of Advent. There becomes a who, a what, and a how of our lives. Let's keep reading. For the who in verse 3. 
that they may be called. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and he may be glorified. When he says the oaks of righteousness, this is not, no, this is not symbolic language. This is what's actually happening. This is an organic righteousness. If I can maybe paraphrase it. It's, it's God saying, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to completely transform you. I'm going to completely change who you were to who you are. And who you are is going to be a, partar- a partaker in the divine nature, First Peter. I'm going to completely change you. I'm going to completely transform your life. This is not symbolic language. This is literal. I'm going to make you an oak of righteousness, an oak growing up into my life. Christ in you, you in Christ. This is what you have. This is who you are. But as we said over and over when we went through our series on Malachi, what we do flows out of who we are. And so for what we do, we're going to fast forward and we're going to look um, at Luke 4. Luke 4, what Jesus does with this quote is, I mean, staggering. I mean, what Jesus does, if you see it, if you see it, it'll change the way you see your life, and that is not hyperbole. I make overstatements. That's not one of them. Look 4.19. Look at how he finishes. I'm here to do what? I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what does Jesus say? Nothing else. But, but what did Isaiah say? Right, Isaiah didn't stop there, right? This is Jesus stopping mid-sentence. This is Jesus quoting Isaiah, stopping mid-sentence. Stopping mid-sentence and saying, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what did he leave off in the day of vengeance? Why in the world would Jesus leave the day of vengeance off? Here's why. Those are two separate days The day of vengeance has not yet come. You see, in Advent, at the heart of Advent, we celebrate the coming of Christ, the first Advent. But this is not the last Advent. There's a second Advent to come when Christ returns. And between now and that day, here's what we do. We proclaim jubilee. We declare and we live Jubilee, complete restoration in Christ, social, spiritual, economic, it's available in Christ. We live, we preach, we proclaim, we display, Jubilee is here. The complete restoration, what it is that your story is looking for, is available in Christ. That's what we say, that's what we do. And now how do we do it at Sojourn? Let's, let's talk about this together as a family, as a church. If you're visiting for the first time, let me give you a window into what it is that we do and how we do it. How do we proclaim Jubilee at Sojourn? We do it through our neighborhood parishes. We do it through communities of men and women who live life together, making Christ accessible to our neighbors. That's how we do it. Let me tell you what we dream. We dream of this day when there would be a neighborhood parish that gathers in walking distance of every man, woman, and child in the Heights and then in Houston. 
One of them might be doable in our lifetime. One of them is going to take generations, more than likely. Because if we believe, Sojourn family, if we believe that Advent is the story of God loving every one of our neighbors, if we believe that Advent is a story of God stepping into the human story, love lost, love found, heartbroken, heart healed, and if we believe that Christ loves and longs for every one of our neighbors to be a part of this story, and we believe that neighborhood parishes are means by which Christ becomes accessible to all of our neighbors, why would we not want a neighborhood parish in walking distance of every man, woman, and child inside of our neighborhood and inside of our city? What more, what better could there be to give our lives to than to seeing Christ becoming accessible through Christian community to every man, woman, and child that we live around? This is what we dream and this is what we pray. What's our how? How do we declare Jubilee? Through neighborhood parishes. And so when we say we're joining, joining God in the mission of God, when we say, hey, neighborhood parish is a place where you learn to follow Jesus and live on mission together, this is what the mission is to declare Jubilee. To put the complete, to put complete restoration the complete healing, social, spiritual that is available in Christ on display through community. What if? What if that's what God wants for us and through us? What, what if that's what God wants for all of our neighbors? Like what if what God wants is every single one of our neighbors to have the story of their life become the story of Advent? Or maybe, what if that's what God wants for you? What if what God wants for you is the story of your life to be the story of Advent? Let me tell you how you find that out. You simply look to Christ and say, I want Advent. I want this coming of Christ. I want the restoration that you're talking about. I want that story to be the story of my life. Let's pray.